Happy New Year and welcome back to the Grazia Life Advice Podcast. What better way to start 2022 than with some insightful advice from another brilliant woman. This week, she's best known as a prolific author, but I was interested to learn more about her activism. My name's Kate Moss, I'm a novelist and a playwright, and I'm this week's guest on Grazia Life Advice Podcast. Kate's book, City of Tears, is out in paperback later this month. We chat about that, about the importance of women supporting women, and the extraordinary coincidence that brought her and her husband together. And then we went separate ways and then met again really ludicrously out of the blue on a train. And my husband was home in England from where he'd been living for the first time in three years. And he got off a plane and on a train at Gatwick Airport and sat opposite me. And she talks about being a working mother, prioritising making time for your kids and not competing to seem like the best mother in the world. Once you therefore stop thinking about, well, I'm the worst mother in the school because everybody else's mum is, is, you know, hand knitting their their costumes, as I, you know, I said, or baking the things or, you know, all of those kind of things, or you're going to a party and there's a competitive, you know, party bag moment and all of these things. This is not where good parenting lies. Good parenting is sitting on the sofa and having a chat. As always on Grazia Life Advice, we'll end with the worst piece of advice Kate has ever been given. For her, it was about how to progress in her career. It shouldn't be a choice that you can't do things within the company or do political things in particular and also rise up the career ladder. And it turned out to be very good advice because it made me realise that a set structure was not for me. It was so great to talk to Kate about all of those things and her brilliant work setting up the Women's Prize for Fiction. Here she comes. I hope you enjoy the episode. Kate, thank you so much for joining us and for being today's guest on the Grazia Life Advice podcast. You're here to share your advice with us, but before we get into that, how are you doing? It's the start of the new year. It's dark, it's cold, it's miserable. How are you? <laughs> how am I? Well, I'm, I'm doing what I always do is like thinking, why am I doing dry January? And then I answer that because I did wet December. Um, and so, but it was actually, I'm feeling, I'm feeling okay. I feel that 2022 is going to be a good year. And I yeah. feel quite energetic and I feel I've got a lot of new projects this year. I've got my new paperback, City of Tears, comes out on the 20th of January. I've got a new career starting at the age of 60. Got my first um, play on at Chichester Festival Theatre in April. And I've got a big book on women in history coming out. And the joy of this is that these things are already written. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I've got to write a novel this year, but I've written all the other stuff. So I'm feeling like, you know, I'm feeling I'm good, good for it. You should feel incredibly proud of yourself. I feel like so when you get to a certain stage in your career, people just don't think to tell you well done anymore because it's like, oh yeah, she's like super successful. She doesn't need to hear it. But honestly, oh no, no, well done. Like, yeah, no, thank you, thank you. No, that's very lovely. Um, and so you're here to share your advice with us. And your first piece of advice is, I believe, something that your mother said to you, and it was to never let the sun go down on your anger. What do you think she meant by this? It's really hard to think of bits of advice in, in this kind of way that you do, because, of course, mostly people don't give you advice in that kind of explicit way. It's just lessons that you learn from them. And I'm not um, a really a bad tempered person, particularly. I'm, I'm annoyingly chirpy most of the time and very much a glass full to the brim rather than anything else. So I'm not quite sure why I remember this so clearly. But what she means by it, and it took me years to understand it, is that don't let um, something that happens 
whether it's you being angry, whether you've fallen out with somebody, whether you have been hurt in some way, um, emotionally or anything else, don't carry one day's um, emotions into the next day. And of course, we all know how easy it is to do that. You know, you relive conversations. You think I should have said that. I can't believe this happened. You know, in the world of work in particular, you know, you've somehow been snubbed or passed over or any of these kind of things. But it's no good to keep carrying it with you. What's important is that you go to bed, you deal with it and you go to sleep and you wake up the next day thinking tomorrow's another day or today's a new day. And I think that is a really powerful piece of advice because often we give things more power than they should have by carrying them with us for a long time. Yes. You know, we've, we all do that, you know, three in the morning, you, you wake up, you know, wide awake and those horrible siblings, insomnia and anxiety that are always lurking to, to pounce on you at that time in the morning. Um, and often it's reliving the day. But what about, you know, if you finish the day, let the sun go down and then tomorrow you start a new day then everything's possible. Yeah. I mean, easier said than done, I can imagine, um, if things have really kind of got under your skin on a particular day. Do you have any tips for how to actually help let go of these things that spin around our heads the whole time and aren't serving us in any way? Yeah, because of course, the, you know, the truth with all of these bits of advice is that advice is easy to give and harder to take and to live by. Um, for me, I find um, that walking is the big issue for me, that if I can walk something out or actually dance something out, you know, I'm 60, but I am not above mum dancing in the kitchen at, <laughs> at drop of a hat, frankly. Um, and I'm afraid it's the old favourites, you know, we're, we're doing a podcast here, but if you could see me, you would see that I have a poster that says Dancing Queen uh, behind me. And, you know, this is a present from my 60th birthday and ABBA still rules in my in my life. But actually, I think, you know, we know the benefits of exercise and um, and particularly for me being out and about in the countryside. So I walk a lot on the Fishbourne Marshes. I walk a lot in the Sussex Downs. I love walking through cities when the, the city's just waking up. I don't live in a, a big city, but I love that if I go up to London to sort of walk through and you can smell all the coffee bean ground and things. And I think that physically taking yourself away so that you, you're not caught inside your own chest and your own head, if you like, is the thing that makes the difference. And silence makes the difference. So trying to empty your head. For me, the point about walking is to walk and to empty your mind. I've, you know, Lots of people will do yoga and all of these things. I've never been able to do anything like that at all. The minute somebody says, here's your mat, I run a mile. <laughs> I've always found it impossible to lie still and do all of that sort of stuff. I, uh, if I'm woken up in the middle of the night thinking about something, I I get up. I don't lie there, you know, sort of in, in bed, sort of, you know, growling um, at, at the stars. I get up and I will always have a cup of tea and a piece of Marmite toast, whatever the time is, um, and we'll do something completely different. And for me, it's about that same thing of resetting. If it, don't let all of these things get their claws into you. Yes. Say goodbye to that stuff and then just think, this is going to be great. You know, just yeah. move forward. Let the sun go down on it. I like that. Your second piece of advice is something that a teacher said to you, I believe. Could you tell us about this one? Yes. Well, it's um, I, 
I was that girl at school. I was the annoying swatty girl who sat at the front of the class, uh, you know, putting her hand up, going, pick me. I wasn't the, the brainiest person at all, but I did work really hard and I really loved school. And you will not be astonished to know that I didn't have that many friends, um, you know, because I was always like um, pushing to get to the front. But um, one of the things that w- was said to me by a, an English teacher, and she was an amazing teacher, she had been... Um, a missionary teacher um, out in China and traveling about and then had come and found herself um, in a girls comprehensive school in Sussex in the 60s and 70s. And she was a she was a really amazing woman. And she could see that I was always judging myself against other people. And that this was not a very good way to live. And she said, told me, she just said, Kate, be proud of what you do achieve, not what you didn't manage to achieve. And it was one of those, of course. So is it good to be ambitious and want to do your best? Absolutely. But compare yourself to yourself. Have you done this as well as you can do? Because if you have, then that is the best you can do. But if you're always comparing yourself to everybody else, there will always be somebody who is cleverer than you, faster than you, taller than you, more interesting than you, fatter than you, thinner than you, you know, all of these things. You, it's not, life isn't a competition. I mean, it is if you're, you know, long distance runner or you're an athlete, I, I do understand that. But in terms of living life, it's about being proud of what you achieve and letting yourself have the joy for it. So as a novelist, um, do I want every book that comes out to be number one? Of course I do, you know, because I want to open the newspaper in the old fashioned way and see your name at the top. But does it matter if I'm not? Of course it doesn't. What matters is, did I enjoy writing that novel or that piece of nonfiction? Do I think I did it the best I could possibly do it? Because if I didn't, then that's something I, could, I should have done better. But if I did, then I mustn't spoil my, my delight in writing the book. You know, The City of Tears, I loved writing. Uh, the story you know, at the heart of it is a missing child story. And I, I write these stories set in the past, but to kind of work out the emotions I would feel for most of us who are parents, what would we do if our child went missing? And, you know, I write women's adventure stories and all of the big emotions I kind of put in my fiction like that. But I've got to feel that I've done my best. Not, but that person did better because they've sold more copies than me. And that is, you know, I learned that lesson as a student. And I was very lucky to have someone say that to me. Do I always feel that? Of course not. (laughs) You know, you feel disappointment and all of these things. But then it's back to the same piece of advice. Then you move on. You know, don't lose the joy in everyday life because it's not quite as good as you'd hoped it would be. Just, you know, enjoy that thing. It's that piece of advice from my mum about not letting the sun go down. You know, life, actually, your life, my life is not a competition. Mm. It's just about doing our best. And it sounds like your parents were really inspirational people in your lives and and taught you a lot. And your third piece of advice is something that they didn't say to you explicitly, but something that just was kind of uh, absorbed by you through your upbringing. Could you tell us a bit about this? Yeah, they were they were so great, my parents. They were, my childhood was, and, you know, I've written about this in my book, An Extra Pair of Hands, which is about, I'm a carer, I'm a full-time carer, and I've been a carer on and off now for 14 years. So, um, so I, I wrote about it um, in the book that came out uh, last year. Um, and my parents, they both worked. My mum worked part-time as a teacher and my dad worked full-time as a lawyer, um, you know, in, in Chichester, in Sussex, where we live. And he absolutely went to work at quarter past nine and came back at quarter past five and all of these things. But the rest of the time, they were on 
committees. You know, my ma ran the guides. My dad was on the parish council. They were part of trying to build a, get a playing field for the village that we lived in. They did a huge amount of voluntary work for other people. And I never realized that a lot of people's parents didn't do that. I just thought, well, that's how it is that, you know, you live in a place and therefore you commit to it. You do stuff. And they were very, very straightforward in their message behind it all was leave the world a better place than you found it. In other words, it's not just about you. It's not about you living the life you want to live. It's about reaching out a hand. It's being part of a bigger story. It's about noticing if somebody needs some support. It's, you know, we, we saw a lot of that during the pandemic. People taking food to total strangers. But in terms of real people and community, it was exactly that idea that just try to make things better. And for me, my community work is not being part of the village parish council or part of the church, which was very important to my, my dad. It, I suppose it was is feminism and it's been about uh, women's voices. And that's been ever since I was a grown up and kind of started to hear about these different ways of looking at things, you know. It, um, that's been where, I suppose, where I've always been. And nowadays we use different words and we use, we see it as political or activism, but it's all the same, really, at the heart of it. It's about use your voice for, the, for other people's benefit. Mm. Don't speak for them, don't get in the way of them, get out the way if they don't want you there, but actually don't be selfish, live as part of the community and live for other people. It's the exact opposite to Margaret Thatcher's there's no such thing as society. Mm. I, you know, And I'm still an idealist. I think that we can all change the world a little bit one day at a time. I think that you do something for somebody, just one person, and that person does something for somebody else, and that's two people. It's very tempting to always think if we can't change everything, then it's not worth trying. Mm. And of course, that way apathy lies and that way disaster lies in terms of how communities work and how people are discriminated against and how things go so ugly and we are in quite ugly times at the moment mm. I would say but if we go back to that idea of each of us just being responsible for our own little bit and mm -hmm. doing something for the people around us then it's the quiet revolutionaries that make the difference mm. it's the quiet revolutionaries that make the world a better place and it feels much more um, well, it feels much less daunting, I think, when you think of it like that. I think sometimes the feeling of wanting to make a difference or um, help the world in some way can be almost like crippling in its enormity. And actually just to think it doesn't need to be a big, giant gesture. It can be something as That's simple right. as checking in on a neighbour. It's that kind of thing. And I learned that at my parents' kitchen table, the fact that they never stop trying to help other people mm. and I admire that enormously we're just going to jump to a quick advert break but we will be right back with Kate Moss and her life advice and we're back with the wonderful Kate Moss who is sharing her life advice with us today and we're on her fourth piece of advice um, which is I believe about parenting it is about parenting now um, I I never thought that uh, being a parent was part of, going to be part of my story. It wasn't. I had friends at school who always knew they wanted to have children and be married and all of these things. And I didn't want to either have children or be married. I did meet my husband when we were 15 <laughs> at school. Um, and we went out together for a couple of years. And then we went separate ways and then met again really ludicrously out of the blue on a train. And my husband was home in England from where he'd been living for the first time in three years. 
and he got off a plane and on a train at Gatwick Airport and sat opposite me. And the only reason wow. I was on that train was that my younger sister had gone into labour and I was her birth partner. So the odds on us meeting again were very, very, very low, but it's what happened. That's incredible. Um, I know it is. Wow. <laughs> it is really ludicrous. Um, but and it is what happened. And then that changed what I felt because at that moment I felt, I don't want children in an abstract sense, but us having children together, actually, yes, that, that would be something. But because I'd never talked about it and because we weren't married and because, you know, it was always, well, Kate would never get married because she's a feminist and feminists don't get married. You know, all of this mm. kind of dialogue and, and sort of chat around that kind of thing. It meant that when I was pregnant, I'd never actually had any conversations with my mother or indeed anybody about having a baby or what being a good parent might look like. And I hated being pregnant. I actually quite like giving birth for that reason. And I love being a parent. I've got two children, they're grown ups, you know, they're 31 and 29. Everything about it has been a wonderful experience for me. But at the same time, I think that there would have been other brilliant experiences. So I'd never had those conversations. And I spoke to my, um, to my mum and my dad years later. And I realised that they had given me very good advice, which was all you can do with children is do your best. Nobody's going to get it right as being a parent. You're always going to make mistakes. You're always going to be stroppy when you should have been, you know, super supportive. You're always going to not be the parent that wants to bake a cake or do all of these things. There's not enough time to be able to make a costume. Um, working mothers still, even though we're in 2022, um, do the lion's share quite often um, if they're in a partnership, you know, or and often if they're not in a partnership at all. Um, working mothers are still made to feel guilty. So we, all the things that I as a, a feminist hoped might have been kind of more sorted are not sorted. So there's a great deal of burden on all parents about doing a great job. And it's a huge business. It's, you know, companies' business to make people feel that they're not doing a good enough job. You know, we know this. We know this, but it still gets to us. It still gets to us. But my parents, you know, just said, try your best. And if you make a mess of it one day, just tomorrow's another day. It's the same piece of advice, really, I suppose. Um, and I, you know, and I, I t it's very important now I'm a full-time carer because some days it's just very tough. Mm. It's just very, very tough. And you feel you've been impatient and you haven't been as kind or as um, sympathetic as you should be. But you have to just think, well, tomorrow I'm just going to try and do a bit, but I'm going to be more patient tomorrow. Mm. Um, and with also, I would say with children, the other piece of advice is that the only thing that really matters, I'm sneaking an extra piece of advice here. Mm -hmm. The only thing that really matters is that you love them. Of course, shelter, food, support, all of these things are, are critical. But the one thing that is in your control is loving them, if you can. You know, And some people find that hard for all sorts of reasons and others not so much. And once you therefore stop thinking about, well, I'm the worst mother in the school because everybody else's mum is is, you know, hand knitting their their costumes, as I, you know, I said, or baking the things or, you know, all of those kind of things, or you're going to a party and there's a competitive, you know, party bag moment and all of these things. This is not where good parenting lies. Mm. Good parenting is sitting on the sofa and having a chat. Um, and I, I got some very good feedback years later from um, one of my children who had been smoking. And, um, and that would be fine, except he 
was intending to go into music theatre and be a singer, and in fact has done that, and is, you know, that's all worked out very nicely, um, but had been caught smoking at school. And I was rung up and, you know, going to have that conversation. And he told me years later that he'd come in ready to be really aggressive and to accuse me of being a hypocrite because I was going to tell him not to smoke because I used to smoke really heavily when I was a student and younger and all of these things. But what, what I'd done was say, it's up to you. You know, you're 17. In those days, that wasn't illegal. Mm. Um, you still buy your, your own fags at that moment. Um, it's up to you. You know, if you want to protect your voice, you can't do it. But it is up to you. You know, I trust you to make the decision. And you never get any feedback about being a parent. It's the only really big piece of paper I ever had. But I, I thought, you know, that comes back to my parents saying, just do your best. And my mm. ma saying when I first had a baby, you know, they they will cry and it will drive you mad. And you know what? Just you just need to at that moment shut the door and take five. It's mm-hmm. not it's it's just do your best. Always mm-hmm. know that if you do your best, that's that's what matters. Thank you. That is super um uh, inspirational to me because I um, currently have a sick child who I've just stuck in front of the iPad with a bag of chocolate buttons. Yeah, and um, brilliant. I've been feeling really guilty about it. But actually, you're right. It's the best I can do today. Exactly. Not, and I don't do it every day, far from no. it. You know, I give her like amazing experiences most days. And if just one day... She just watches inane cartoons and eats chocolate then, hopefully also, in the big scheme of things. In be the big okay. scheme of things, but also that I'm afraid that society works on women being made to feel guilty. And mm-hmm. it's very manipulative. It's to do with commerce. It's to do with opportunity. It's to do with who runs what and all the rest of it. We have to allow our children to be bored. If we are always filling them with amazing experiences and all of these things... Their inner lives and their imagination doesn't get, you know, the, part of the reason that I'm a writer is because, you know, I promise you, there was nothing to do in Sussex in the 60s. You know, <laughs> everything was shut. You know, on a Sunday, you could go to church and the posh hotel, you know, you could go to it Sunday lunch. But the idea that as a young person, you would sit in a coffee house or meet your friends, you know, if you wanted to meet your friends, you had to, you know, ho- hover around the park. And there wasn't entertainment. You know, there wasn't even a cinema for most of the time. So I I think, you know, don't, it's my big advice to all parents, don't be guilty. Don't be guilty. It's really important. It's a waste. It's a waste of an emotion. Okay. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Your fifth piece of advice is, I think, something that um, the amazing Helena Kennedy said to you when you were, when she was setting up the Women's Prize. And she said, if you can't do something, never put the phone down without recommending another woman who can do it. So is this something that really resonated for you when you heard her say it? Yes, absolutely. I was um, with setting up the Women's Prize, which is now in its 28th year, astonishingly. It celebrates um, extraordinary writing by women uh, from all over the world, written in English. And it's an annual prize. It's the biggest celebration of women's creativity in the world, annual celebration. And um, uh, things have changed enormously. You know, we've had a new wave of feminism. We have um, people thinking, understanding that there's a difference between what individuals do and the structures that mean that women are discriminated against or people of colour are discriminated against or disabled people are discriminated against. And when I was setting up the Women's Prize, it was a real baptism of fire. It was it was absolutely that period of time when it was the, 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 the lie, because it is a lie, is that if you are any good, you will make it come what may. So if 
you don't get the promotion because it's not because you're a woman, it's because you're rubbish. And if you don't get the promotion, it's not because you're black, it's because you're rubbish. You know, that was the that was the entire atmosphere of the time, kind of survival of the fittest mm. uh, sort of thing. And so it was very, it was baptism on fire. And there were several amazing women who I'd asked if they would support, who had said yes, one of them being the great uh, legal eagle, b- biggest brain I know, Helena Kennedy. And I was talking to her, um, trying to get some advice, and I was doing a huge amount of talking about the prize and going out and, you know, and the fact that usually it would just be me and I'd be the only woman on a panel. And often I'm the only woman in the room. Things have changed a lot now. This is great. But these things don't change on their own. And Helena just said to me, you know, if you can't do something, Kate, just never put the phone down without recommending another woman. Mm. Because if you do that, then it extends the numbers of women who are speaking publicly and who are out publicly and who are out in any public space. Because otherwise what happens is I'm asked to do something, I say I can't do it. They get another man and then they say, well, we asked a woman. She said no. Mm-hmm. And it was just one of those such an easy and obvious piece of advice. But I have lived my life by that for the past 28 years. If I can't do something, never don't recommend another woman. Yeah. And I imagine your network has expanded so much that you've pretty much got a little black book full of people, women who can do Uh, everything under the sun. uh, And and also um, now I will, you know, this was something, this is a, you know, something that I've learned and has has come into more sharp relief in the last few years um, within publishing. But it's also, if I'm asked to do something on a panel, I will say, well, who are the other women and who are the people of colour or the black Mm. people on this panel? Because the only thing we can do is use our voice to extend opportunities. And when I was setting up the prize, um, my lovely dad, he was very much a man of his generation. He was born in 1924 um, and he went straight from school uh, onto the battlefields in the Second World War. Um, and he was a gentle man, um, but he was old fashioned in some respects. But when I was trying to explain, firstly, the type of adventure books I write, you know, and I said, they're like the books you used to read me. Um, But the difference is that in my books, the women get to have the swords and the women get to do the rescuing. And I was trying to then explain the women's prize. And when I'd explain why we were doing it about the fact that the majority of literary prizes, 9% only of people shortlisted for literary prizes, major literary prizes were women, even though 60% of novels published were by women. And was trying to explain that there was this disconnect in women's work being valued, uh, being seen as literature, all of these things. And when I'd gone into my great spiel to my wonderful traditional dad, he just said, oh, I I see, darling. It's not about leaving anybody out. It's just getting a bigger table and more chairs. Mm. Simple. And that's, that's the advice from Helena. Just every time, add one more woman into the mix. And before you know it, there's a hundred of us. Amazing. Your sixth piece of advice is from your husband, Greg. Um, What has Greg told you about uh, your writing process? Well, (laughs) so um, this is a a brilliant piece of advice. And for anyone who is um, a writer who's listening or lives with a writer, you will recognise this. And Greg's advice is to me at every moment when I hit the essay crisis moment of a deadline, 
uh, when the book is clearly not going to be finished on time and I'm going to be up all night and uh, become deranged and not really ever get dressed. And, you know, I mean, the postman recognises it. Everybody who ever comes to the house, they will know that there's a certain moment which I basically never get out of my pyjamas. And it's the last two weeks heading for a big book deadline. And Greg always just says to me when I'm look, looking, you know, a bit, a bit hassled, he'll just say, darling, books take as long as they take. Mm-hmm. Now, it sounds like a really daft piece of advice, but it's really important because everything about modern working is about deadlines. All the things that were supposed to save us time in terms of technologies and emails and cars and telephones and all the rest of it, all they have actually done is mean that we have can fill out more of our time more quickly. It's that sense of what you know philosophers would call the debt to the future that there's always something that can be done. You never get to the end of the list. These things don't work when you're writing a novel. You know, when I was writing The City of Tears, the story had to be allowed to breathe. It needs to find its own shape and it cannot be rushed. A piece of journalism, if I know that I've got 8,000 words, I've got to write it by X, of course I can do that because essentially there's a structure, you know how to do that. But with a novel, you've got to let the white space in. You've got to let the characters time to find themselves and be themselves. And so Greg is always at any moment in a book saying to me, books take as long as they take. He has to say it every time (laughs) because not because it's not possible for me to do the book in the time, but I never start early enough. I faff around (laughs) thinking about it, spending ages waiting for that moment to plunge. When I do plunge, I'm a sprinter. So when I'm writing, I write eight hours a day. I start about four in the morning, seven days a week until it's done. Wow. That's what happens. God. You know, this is my 14th book. (laughs) It's always the same. But books take as long as they take. And that's the same with reading as well. Just enjoy it. (laughs) Um, Well, thank you so much for your amazing six pieces of really good advice. Before we um, say goodbye, we are going to talk about a bad piece of advice that you've been given. Can you tell us what this was? With bad piece of advice, I, I think that quite often they're not necessarily bad pieces of advice in general terms. They're bad for you at that particular moment. For somebody else, there'd be very good pieces of advice. And my piece of advice is this. So I was at at work. I used to be a publisher and I kind of left publishing partly to do, you know, other things and to write, but also when when the Women's Prize was becoming really a very big amount of my time. Um, But I was at a crossroads at this particular moment in publishing. And I'd, you know, got some a good job and I'd been moving up and I was getting all of those kind of things. But I was also doing, um, involved in the NUJ. I was also involved in negotiating um, things like maternity leave for people and, and all of these things. Um, and I was called in by the managing director um, who offered me a really big job and said to me, she said to me, that if I stop doing all of those other things, I could go far. And it was really interesting because, of course, you think there's part of you that thinks, oh, they think I'm good. You know, I'm going to have, you know, whatever it is I want. I'm going to have this job and I'm going to be promoted and all the rest of it. But of course, what it made me think was that shouldn't be a choice. It shouldn't be a choice that you can't do things within the company or do political things in particular Mm. and also rise up the career ladder. 
And it turned out to be very good advice because it made me realize that a set structure was not for me. Mm. And I think for a lot of women, that's true because it's a man-made world for the most part in terms of big companies. Things are changing enormously. This is, you know, 30 years ago and things are changing enormously. But at the same time, there was a spirit then of feminism, which is that for women, if you can't stand the heat, get out the kitchen. Mm. And the idea was that in order to succeed, you needed to succeed uh, on male terms, if you like. You needed to out outmen the men uh, rather than what would have been better to essentially feminize the way of doing things. We now know that companies that have a lot of senior women perform better. We now know that um, having a range of voices, diverse voices, makes any organization stronger and more representative because it belongs, it, ha you know, it has proper roots. It's not sort of a structure that everybody's trying to fit into. And I'm not sure that I would have realized it that soon if I hadn't been taken aside like that. Mm. So it was a, a piece of advice that would have been good advice for somebody else, which would have been concentrate on your career and you'll go far. But for me, it was, okay, fair enough. That's probably not how I'm going to do things. Mm. And after that, I left and started to write a book and went from having, you know, two young children and an office and a job and a salary uh, to sitting at home writing my first book. Mm. And that was a scary moment. I bet. But thank goodness you did it because well, I mean, the amount of amazing work that you've um, created and founding the Women's Prize. I mean, I'm personally very glad you didn't listen to that person. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'm glad too. Yeah. I've had a much more fun life. And, it, and, and I think, you know, for anybody listening, it's just, it's, it's just that thing that, you know, just do the thing you're doing and take the opportunities that come along. And if it doesn't work out, do something else. You know, the, the, the cliche about the only things that are certain are death and taxes. The only thing, you know, you can't do half and half. You're either pregnant and having a baby or you're not. You know, that's not a half and half thing either. Death, taxes, pregnancy. But apart from that, give it a go. If that job doesn't work out or that opportunity doesn't work out, try something else. And if you think in those terms, rather than I must, you know, in two years time have achieved this, four years time achieved that, you know, it's, there's been a lot of ups and downs, but it's been fun. <laughs> <laughs> what a fantastic place to end. Thank you so much, Kate, for being with us today. I've really, really enjoyed talking to you. Thank um, you. It's been wonderful. Thanks for listening to this week's Grazia Life Advice podcast. And thanks again to Kate Moss for sharing so generously with us. I'll finish up with the usual final plea. If you've enjoyed listening today, give us a review in your podcast player. And if you know someone you think would love to hear Kate's words of wisdom, please send them the link to listen to. See you next week. 